0: If I would have known that the first time I ever went to go shoot a gun, it was going to affect my life as much as it did, I would have called you up and said, hey, can you bring the film crew out to film me? Because this is going to be a life-changing experience and I want to make sure I have it on on camera. Kind of, You know what I mean? Like... We're off and rolling. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of Open Action. I am, of course, John McLean. And today I have got a really awesome uh, guest that I absolutely love. And, and, you know, we've we've had quite the relationship uh, for, for a few years now. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about my first memory of how we interacted with each other. But uh, if you've been living under the rock uh, in the firearms industry and you don't ever see anything from Shooting USA, then you won't know I guessed. But I'm guessing you haven't been living under a rock, which means that you absolutely know that my guest today is John Scouten from Shooting USA. John, thank you so much for being here.
1: Yeah, man. Thank you, John, for that uh Warm welcome to Action Open. I love the name. I did not know the video cast was called Action Open. Open, open Action.
0: Open Action. I'm like sorry. All right.
1: All right. Well, <laughs> trademark Action Open, the new Shooting USA production. Uh, we're using Riverside, which I've uh, just started dabbling in, and it can be a little challenging from time to time. But by the looks of what I can see on my feed, it's working great. So uh, as long as y'all can hear me, I can see you, and we can get right
0: rocking into this
1: thing, man. Perfect, perfect.
0: Well, uh, so you're based out of Franklin, Tennessee now. Is that correct? Is that where you're located? Yeah,
1: true story. Now. Yeah, we're, we're very thankful to be blessed in living here in the beautiful state of Tennessee. And uh, it's an interesting place to be right now because weather is a little challenging. We're in what they call false spring. so um uh, winds storms so on and so forth you know a little bit about that being in missouri
0: yeah i was about to say we've been having this weird weather too where it's like it's super nice for the days where like you know kelly's nephew can't come over and play with with nomi uh and then as soon as the weekend comes the temperature drops to the 30s and it's like oh, never mind no one's allowed to go outside and hang out so that's been, that's right. been an interesting ride so far now okay so um before we get into the nitty-gritty stuff, you know, down and dirty and whatnot, I got I to gotta ask this. Being from that you're in Tennessee, how important is it that you like whiskey? <laughs> well, um, before
1: anything, I need everybody to understand, uh, I am a Tennessee Squire. As a Tennessee Squire, I own one square inch of property on the Jack Daniels Distillery in Lynchburg, Tennessee. And I've toured uh, the distillery a total of six times, th- twice pre 9-11 which means i got to actually get my face right on top of the mash in the bins and uh, it's evolved a lot and that is where my taste for whiskey began Uh, since then i have become a massive fan of the the products by jimmy russell uh, out of the house of wild turkey russell's reserve and all the way up i've got an unopened bottle of russell's 13 Uh, none of that is kept here at my office but in addition to that, I'm a big fan of uh, the House of Buffalo Trace and the things that they make there. I have, interestingly enough, uh, I ran into a guy a couple of years ago now while my wife and I were vacationing in Mexico who, from South Carolina, he knew of the show. And uh, he recognized me when we were at dinner. And we ended up sitting around chatting about all sorts of things related to precision long range competition and this individual um with a group of his friends had gone on a trip to buffalo trace and done a barrel select and he had a you know he had his share of that barrel's worth of bottled single barrel buffalo trace and we chatted about whiskey for so long chatted about guns for so long and All of a sudden, a couple of weeks later here at the office, a bottle of single barrel select Buffalo trace showed up from that guy. And so that is currently on infinite reserve on my bar now. Um, But it is always fun to have a little half ounce taste of that against a half ounce taste of just an off the shelf Buffalo trace, which is a blend, you know, blended Buffalo trace to their, to their specific profile. And it really, really comes through the difference in a single barrel versus the blend. I love the blend, love Buffalo trace. It got a lot of, it has gotten a lot of notoriety since being associated with the Joe Rogan podcast, um, which makes it pretty difficult to find from time to time. And without saying so, I might be a little controversial for our friends in Kentucky cause I know there's a, a deep shooting culture in Kentucky and I'm hopeful that many of them listen to you. Um, there's a bit of a vendetta between the distributors. There's not a lot of the really nice stuff out of the Kentucky houses makes it into Tennessee. And that's what I think makes it fun to chase bourbons and chase different whiskeys. When we all travel to different destinations for the competitions that we cover for shooting USA. And of course you participate in at an elite grandmaster level. Um, You know, for instance, there's a couple of hole-in-the-wall mom-and-pop's liquor stores down around the CMP in Alabama. And the last time um, we went hunting in one of those this past fall, uh, a buddy of mine who's on my crew regularly, Randall Reed, um, he absolutely scored. He walked around the corner in this little store and he gave out a holler like there was a rattlesnake in the middle of the floor. And what he actually found was two bottles of Blanton's and a bottle of Eagle Rare on the shelf for retail. Bought all of it, obviously. Uh, there was a bottle of Weller 12 behind the counter. That came home with me. I paid a little extra for it, but it's worth it. If you can find a Weller 12, uh, that's the beginning of, you know, I mean, that's the, that's the introduction to what will become uh, the Van Winkle family of whiskeys. So, you know, Pappy Van Winkle comes from Weller juice, and then they do their After Effects One more I want to mention, and again, you get me talking about whiskey, and (laughs) that's why I brought it up, man. (laughs) We'll derail this podcast so fast. We need a different, we need a separate podcast that's just whiskey. I could do it from my whiskey room. I have a whiskey room at the house where I have my my record. My I have a you know I have a vinyl collection, and I have my record player in there. I have a leather couch. I have my leather recliner, and then I have a whole array, which I've learned is you know I'm kind of still entry level. I've I've got about seventy selected bourbons in my collection right now but when you start talking bourbon with people especially down and around these parts guys will whip out their phone and you'll see two three hundred bottles kind of anyway um i got a bottle of uh pappy 12 for christmas and as it was gifted you don't just put that up you don't put that up and not open it when it's gifted it's pretty much you know i mean you're obligated to open it and taste it and i'm telling you man it's something special i've had tastes of pappy 15 in the past and i had one occasion um with steve hornady and jim scouting to taste pappy 20 and uh, jim is a big scotch drinker and so when steve poured him that taste of pappy 20 he took a taste of it and he said oh this is sweeter than what i like to drink and i I came right out of his hand so quick i was like yeah yeah for sure get him get him a something else Uh, i'll take care of this Anyway, yeah, love love bourbon, love the culture around it, love it when we get to talk to people who are into it, and um, there's a bunch of guys in, especially in the the pistol sports who are who are big bourbon heads. So it's fun, it's a good time.
0: Yeah, so uh, I I was not I was not super into bourbon. I was my preferred drink was Jameson um, mm-hmm. when it came to to whiskey, Remember that? right? Yes. and that comes yes. back Remember to. That it- that award ceremony that first year. Exactly. With you and, and me and Pete. Yep, that's right. I, uh, I That was the first time I placed in the top 10. At a USPSA level event or a national level event. So I was I was yeah, doing man. a little bit of celebration before the award ceremony and I happened yeah, to have the bottle in my back pocket and I remember uh yeah, you, yeah, you came up and you said, Hey man, how, how can I take it? Like, excuse can, me. Yeah, are you sharing? Let, said, little,
1: let me get a little touch of
0: that. Let me get a little pull off of that. Yep.
1: So Yeah, man, that was you and me and Pete Rinsing in Vegas, if I remember
0: correctly. Yep. That that was absolutely. Funny. Yeah. After it was after yeah. Multicon Nationals was in Desert Sportsman's, which it's no longer um, there anymore. But um yeah, that was the Is first right? time. Yeah, that was one of the first times. So desert
1: did... sportsmen's finally rolled up into the neighborhoods that were encroaching all those years. I didn't uh, know. No, that.
0: I, I think they still exist. Just they right? don't hold matches anymore. Ah, okay. Yeah, they they kicked all the the dangerous match shooting people out. So man, they we got to...
1: so many memories that go on. I mean, that was the uh, was that the year that that uh, Jim Zubiena showed up in that jacket, and I ended up just like completely. Well, maybe it was a year later, but it was one of the final events at desert sportsman's for multi-gun and the you know the famous one of the original gms from back in the day jim zubiana shows up and you know for those that don't know about his pedigree he was one of the first guys to take real practical pistol craft into hollywood and he was tied in with michael mann when they were doing the original uh miami vice and he actually as a firearms trainer, worked with Don Johnson and uh can't remember Tubbs' name, the actor that played Tubbs right off the top of my head. But he ended up, Zubiena ended up with a role in the first season of Miami Vice where he played a hitman and uh he does a draw from appendix and puts a Mozambique on a rookie cop who thinks he's got the drop on him. And I end up doing this long format interview with him and we went and got the video from miami vice and all of this dude it's so good it's just like putting those connections together but that goes back to those days when we were still out in vegas on the regular for the for multi-gun and for the other handgun nationals man that there were so many years that we were there the orleans hotel you staying at the orleans hey
0: you lived out there back then you were you were still in vegas at that time yep yep i was and uh uh, I, I gotta say, I, I don't miss it. <laughs> I, I, if I had to move to Missouri in my twenties, I would have been pissed, but because I did it in my thirties after I'd kind of gotten over the peopley thing, uh, and right. then especially with COVID, um, when that happened, right. man, right. I was so glad to get out right. of the big city and come to a, a small town like I am now. But, um, yeah, Ooh. that was, that was the first, first time I ever had really had an interaction with you. Um, and I think actually maybe it, it might've been that year was also the first time I was ever on Shooting USA because I had mm-hmm. a camera on my hat, and you asked me for the footage, mm-hmm. and we used it that. for the episode. So. I remember that. I uh, remember that. And that's, you know, as
1: technology has evolved, like, everybody wears a camera on their hat now. Like, everybody's got the little brim eye-shot uh, eye cameras now. But, dude, back then it was like the cameras were clunky, and GoPros were just starting to become what they are. They really weren't anything good at that time. And, you know, my POVs were the the sony still the sony disposable palm quarters which we still use from time to time because honestly people joke all the time and always have oh what happens if that gets shot what happens if that camera gets shot i'm like well here's the deal if it's not rolling then i'm a, i'll be i'll be sad about it like i'll be upset if it's not on and <laughs> right. it gets shot then i'm sad about it <laughs> if it's on and it gets shot i'm like awesome dude because at this point those cameras have had so much time in the field. They have paid for themselves over and over again. And a, essentially a Sony palm quarter now, one of those little palm quarters is less than 200 bucks. And they really do make really nice video if you position them correctly and make mm-hmm. it look right. It works really, really well. But that's, uh, yeah, that was my shtick back in the day. I would see guys like you who had figured out a way to mount a camera on themselves for their own purposes, we'd film the run with our television cameras and my POVs and the things that I would be setting. And then I would hit people up and be like, Hey man, can I get a transfer of your data? I mean, that's just, that's been a staple and I've been so fortunate to, to get some great video over the years from all sorts of different events and all sorts of different things, just
0: simply networking in that way. Yeah. It's good, man. It's fun and and as technology has uh advanced and and you know these cameras are getting smaller the quality gets better a lot of them have like image stabilization built into them now Very which is so, which yeah. is awesome yeah, yeah. um there's there's another aspect to your job which is being the host of shooting USA that I thought was a I I appreciated your approach and your mindset behind it and that's that uh, while you do great work in front of the camera, you also do really good work behind a gun, and you took a step into uh, saying, "No, you, you do right." I mean, let's let's be right. honest. Like, well, well, I appreciate that. I think you're
1: overselling it a little bit, but well, the idea of getting involved from my side of the, you know, I'm the guy who is bringing shooting sports to your your television or your video screen, however you consume your media. Um, I'm spreading the good news of the shooting sports. I'm showing you the best in the nation, the best in the world in many cases, in all of these different disciplines. I'll show you the products related to it. I'll find some guys and girls who will do what we call pro tips. And we've been so wildly successful with those because it's professional instruction that the audience, the novice shooter needs and wants. And you know, it's just the tip of the iceberg in many places. But taking the next step, which is, To say, all right, I am not going to take myself so seriously that I won't participate in these events that we're at. I will do it at my skill level, whatever that may be, low, you know, initially U and D and maybe C, B in a couple of divisions after a few years. Um, But I will do it at my skill level so that the audience can understand, one, I don't take myself so seriously that I won't be embarrassed by the best in the world. I won't be embarrassed by club shooters. I'm going to go out and show you what my experience is doing it. I'm going to show you how it goes wrong for somebody at my skill level or, in some cases, how it goes right. And then that gives everyone in the audience the understanding that you can do it, too. And quite honestly, that is one of the biggest uh, one of the, the the biggest things for me that really validate the work and the time and the travel and, you know, the stress and the heat and the dust and the rain and everything else that goes along with it, because it is, it is a job and it does consume a lot of time and it takes me away from my family and it takes me away from things that I could be doing at home when I'm not at home. Um, the number one thing that validates all of that investment is when someone comes to me at a match, no matter what the match is, and says, hey, man, I love your show, and I'm here because I saw you doing it, or I'm here because I saw it on your show. That, for me, is the payoff, and expanding the shooting sports, continuing to spread the good news of you know, safe, fun, and essentially effective training through sport is our, that's literally the mission of Shooting USA, and Um, I love it when I hear people say that.
0: Well, and that was exactly what I was going to bring up because, you know, one of the, one of the downsides to, you know, like I obviously I love shooting competition or else I wouldn't have been doing it for as long as I have. And I wouldn't have put as much time and energy and effort and blood, sweat and tears into it as I have. But the downside is that whenever I try and invite people to come shoot a match with me, the first thing they do is they go to my page and they watch me shoot and they go, oh, well, I can't do that. And, and it's like it, to, it already right there off the bat, they're starting off with that. Well, I don't I don't want to go there and, and look like an idiot or have people laugh right. at me or or judge right. me. It's, I don't want to be
1: embarrassed. <laughs> right, I don't right. want to do the wrong thing. Um, and I've you know, that's part of what I think me participating in it at my level, which is admittedly way off the pace of those that we present to you as world and national champions in Shooting USA's like premier coverage of whatever event we're at, Um, that, that says to people, you can do it. Now, there's, you know, there's 400 people at this match, 25 of them are elite level and have a shot at winning this thing, but the other 375 of them are competing against themselves, the clock, others within their same skill level in their division. And that's the interesting piece. It's challenging within the, you know, roughly three segments, 16 or so minutes of coverage of a nationals for me to look away from the guys and girls that are going to take down the championship and look towards, let's say, the heated race in you know, C class for those guys. You know I mean? They're, they're dicing it up in C and we got a guy who's breaking out and looks like he's going to get a match bump into B. Where is he going to stack up in B? If time wasn't a limiter when it comes to presenting our show within the format of the network, we could go on about that all day, like absolutely all day. And again, it's it's one of those things. I, I It's important to talk to everybody who's involved, everybody who wants to be there. The person I really want to get is that guy or that girl, you know, that family maybe that's thinking I could do it, ah, maybe I won't this time. I don't know. Maybe I could, maybe... Ah, those are the people that I want to, like, tip the scale for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And 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 yeah. I think, you know, like I said, like you said, like that's... It, it's an interesting dynamic that we always have to play with because, like you said, like, yeah, you know, 10, 10 to 15% of the shooters at a national level match are the elite people that maybe have a potential to, to win. But I, I remember... Being a B class shooter and like freaking out over the results, being like, "Oh my god, this this other B class shooter is I, I'm only ten points ahead of him." Like, yep. it's still a competitive env- environment, even though one hundred percent. Even though I'm not a and GM, I, well, I can speak to that too. Having you know, we sh-
1: having just shot well, not just shot, but had the last big USPSA nationals I shot was uh, the the PCC and production match, and I shot a PCC, and I was just squad. I typically will not squad. You know, I don't anymore like to squad with, you know, select group. I don't want to. I don't want to. I just want to be put somewhere, and hopefully there's people who are of my similar skill level or whatever, you know, so just put me with people, and that's how I make new friends. That's how I meet people on the range, whatever, and this year that was the case, and um, it was interesting because uh, Kenzie Fitzpatrick was on the squad. She's mm-hmm. a jam-up PCC shooter, one of the top ladies. And, um, you know, she was watching the scores as the match was winding down. And she was looking at other girls specifically that she was trying to edge out. And it was interesting to see that for her. You know, she's not gonna catch justine obviously i mean justine was second overall in the match she justine beat scott green justine beat josh Frelick. like i'm naming legit justine she beat john mcclain she's dude and it doesn't us. it it simply doesn't make sense but it makes sense i mean she's that good right yeah. um you know if max Leagrandis had not shown up justine is your pcc national champion you know what i mean oh, And yeah uh, yikes but regardless of the fact this you know a class pcc shooter on my squad is looking at the rest of the girls and like fighting for every point to see if she can catch the podium and literally miss the podium i, I think it was less than maybe a, a match point it wasn't it was so incredibly close and um her skill level her ability to break down a stage translates when you spend three half days in a match with somebody, you know, admittedly way beyond my skill level, but still willing to share a stage plan, willing to talk through how it should go, how it does, and always super super supportive like everybody is and that's what's cool about the thing if you don't want the stage plan fine dude figure it out on your own good luck and you'll end up like me on day one not that i turned down the stage plan but i'm i'm working on getting the crew going on other stages and i'm like didn't get a chance to really walk the first stage that we shot and you know, okay, now we're gonna shoot this first stage. You've got pre-match jitters. You haven't really felt the gun yet, and you don't have a—you really don't have a stage plan that goes beyond the first two positions. And there's four positions beyond. Well, those four positions beyond, you're gonna end up shooting targets twice. You're gonna—and I ended up putting that in the show because you know the crew came around and there was multiple cameras, and you can see me hesitantly working my way up the side of the up the side of the stage and I shoot the same target in the back twice. And, you know, you walk off that stage and after the cameras have gone away and they got my reaction, the better shooters in that squad, including Kinsey are like, okay, dude, uh, you need, you need to work on your stage plan. What, what was that? You're better than that. And that's that encouragement piece that gets me to a point where the rest of the match, the rest of those days, it was steady improvement and, That's what I want to get across to people is, is you're not going to come out and win your division. You're not going to come out and win the national, but you will come out and you will improve and you will learn something every single time you do it. And as long as you continue to build on that body of knowledge, that level of experience continues to increase for everybody. And literally all of the ships will rise with that tide. And that's
0: the piece. Yeah. Lots of talking, man. I just get going on stuff. No, no, it's good. I like it because it shows obviously that you're passionate about it. And and to your point, you know, um, how how cool would it be if you showed up at, you know, TPC sawgrass and you were able to mm-hmm. say, Hey, I'm just a one some and I need to get in a group? And they go, Oh, okay, cool. Tiger Woods just pulled up. We'll throw you in his right. group. Like and yeah. and while that maybe that happens in the golf course, I don't know, because I don't have enough money to ever play T P C sawgrass, but in the shooting world, I can tell you, I mean, sometimes you'll get people that are just like, oh, my God, I'm squatted with Jerry Michelek. You know, I'm mm-hmm. squatted with Jan- Nils Jonasson. What am I doing here? And it's like, that's a that's a cool experience for a shooter to be able to, you know, all these people they see in the magazines and the TV shows and stuff, now they're squatted with mm-hmm. them. And then, mm-hmm. throughout their interaction, they they realize, like, wow, like, every morning, Nils comes up and says hi and asks me how I'm feeling today and, mm-hmm. and and you know, told me that I shot really well yesterday or, or is giving me pointers and tips. And it's like... That's a very different dynamic that uh, I don't see in many other professional sports. Uh, And then there's also the dynamic of when you're at that elite level, you know, all the top guys, they're what we're talking our stage plans through. No one's hiding Mm -hmm. anything. No one's like, no, no, this is my plan. I'm not – you go mess up and then I'll show you mine and you'll be like, oh, man, why didn't I think – that doesn't happen. Um, We all share stage plans. We all – We'll we'll argue ideas of being like, no, I think going to this position first is slower because of this. Well, yeah, you know, like we kind of bounce ideas off of each other. We try and find what works. Sometimes we all end up on the same stage plan. Sometimes everyone ends up on a different one, and, you know, we see where the dice fall. But then there's also the aspect of, man, if your gun breaks, normally it's the people in your squad are the first people to say, what do you need? I've got some extra parts. Let's, you know, like, hey, well, your safety broke? Okay, let's go see if mine fits. Like... Huh. Dude, any other sport they'd be like, "Oh, you're seven iron, bro?" Yeah. Tough. I guess yeah. you're playing way. Either- yeah, exactly, yeah. you know. It's
1: like a- try that at try that in Formula 1. Try that in NHRA drag racing. Try that in any other form of mechanical racing, which let's face it, that's what this is. We're racing the guns. The guns are the race car, if you will. Um, to your exact point at PCC Nationals at the end of day 2, when I'm on this ride, like I'm really getting I'm really getting into my flow and i'm feeling good about this and i break a firing pin after the fifth shot on the last stage for the day but what is remarkable about that i mean yeah that stage is a complete throwaway and it thankfully it wasn't a complete zero but it was pretty dang close and it hurt um the guys from da vinci are there they've already been you know this is the end of the afternoon session so they've already kind of packed everything up and they're getting ready to leave but i'm like I I didn't know to ask directly, but thankfully, through people realizing, oh, man, firing pin, the guy from Da Vinci opens up his Tupperware that he's packed all of his stuff to sell away for the night, and he hands me a firing pin. Here's a brand new firing pin. Um, and he wouldn't take money for it. I'm mean, yeah, granted, it's like a fifteen or an eighteen dollar part, like a twenty dollar part. I'm trying to put a twenty in his pocket, and I'm like handing him the twenty, and he won't take it. Like he's like, nah, man, just take care of it. Just go ahead, go fix your gun, no problem. It never really it's never been a thing and that's one of the things that's unique about the shooting sports as a whole and it's not just you know the practical sports it's not just ipsic uspsa it's uh it's in the prs it's the same thing in the prs guys have a scope go down and you know many people have extras and they will literally either let you shoot an extra rifle or whatever it's just it's been that way in my experience across the board in all of the shooting sports. There is a level of competitiveness admittedly, but there is also the value to actually having a legitimate win. You don't want to beat somebody because their gun broke, and that's not a way to take a win. And that's one of those things that it it speaks to the sportsmanship at every level and it includes, you know, that includes the club level. Guys guys don't want to guys don't want to just I don't know. I guess it's one of those things. They'll give you the shirt right off of their back, and everybody's really been known to do that. I've never seen anything that didn't completely represent that level of camaraderie, family, and sportsmanship. And in the few events that you ever had somebody who was ever not in lockstep with that, those people are weeded out pretty quick. You don't see them come
0: back. No. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, no, it's it's just it's I've. Like, uh, I'll put it this way. So me growing up, you know, my, my family was we, – we had a fa- firearm incident when I was young that turned a family into an anti-gun family, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, as soon as I turned 18, I went and bought a rifle. And then as soon as I turned 21, I went and bought a handgun, and started shooting competition and stuff like that. But um, if I would have known that the first time I ever went to go shoot a gun, it was going to affect my life as much as it did – I would have called you up and said, hey, can you bring the film crew out to film me? Because this is going to be a life-changing experience, and I want to make sure I have it on, on camera. Kind of, You know what I mean? Like, um, mm-hmm. And the the friendships. You know, again, it's, it's kind of funny because everyone, you know, when you say you're a professional shooter or that you shoot uh, you know, a sponsored-level shooter or whatever, um, really what that means is that you're a professional resetter, and you occasionally shoot, but most mm-hmm. of the time, like, you're also a professional hanger-outer. That's like, right. And, and anyone that's ever been to a match where, you know, you had a squad, maybe there's people that were lazy, no one ever resets, everyone just wants to sit back and chill in the shade. Like, that can be a miserable experience. Even though the stages are great and the match is fun, like, the interaction you have with those people is making this experience bad. But, I mean, when you, when you really think about it, you know, we spend three days to shoot for a total of seven minutes. Yeah. But, you know, like to have that interact, like obviously there's something about it. We like, and it's not the shooting because that's such a minuscule part of the match experience. It's the, it's the friendships. It's the jokes. It's the, it's the, you know, bragging, bragging rights that you get to talk. Yeah. I remember, you know, when I first started shooting with Nils, obviously he was smoking me left and right. And, and I made a, a promise to him that I was like, look next year at area two, I'm going to beat you on at least one stage. It's going to happen. And he was like, yep, Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll see it when it happens and next year i sure enough was able to edge him out on one stage and i was just like in his face constantly like oh you said it wasn't gonna happen but here it is sucker." next year two stages and the year after that i I beat him on two stages and and you know i the joke i made was like nils in like seven or eight more years i'm gonna win this match from you (laughs) because at Mm -hmm. that rate you know well but and and it didn't happen (laughs) because he obviously kept getting better too but um No, it's just not – it's a very, very interesting environment to be in, and I'm very thankful that I I took the chance to go out and make myself look like an idiot. I'm saying quotation fingers here because it's really – everyone wants you to just be safe. They want you to have fun. They want you to have a good experience because they want you to keep coming back, and and it's not because of, oh, we we need this guy's match fee money. Trust me, if anyone can tell you anything about it – there's not money to be made necessarily in the shooting sports, right? right? Like, we're all right. doing it for fun. And I think the the other thing, too, is, like, the level of competency that you gain about the firearm and, and how yes. to be a responsible firearms owner is priceless. That skill set, the ability to handle your firearm uh, is... Right under pressure of the of the clock and on un- competition and yet you can do it in a safe manner where you are you're yep. constantly able to be thinking about what you're doing and understanding the consequences of this action and that action. I mean that's that stuff to me is priceless. So um, for anyone that has never tried to shoot a match, absolutely I suggest going out and just doing it at a local level. I promise you, I promise you no one is gonna laugh at you. No one's gonna make fun of you unless they're already your friend. Well um, yeah. <laughs> you know but it's it's uh it can literally be a life-changing event. You could go from never shooting a match in your life to all of a sudden that's what you want to do. You want to get yep. you know you want to get some companies to support you that you like their product so that you can go out and represent it on on the cir- on the circuit and uh it's it's yeah, it's been an unreal ride so far. Well, better yet, you bring people in who have specialties
1: or have careers in You know, in businesses or in in fields uh, of expertise that are not related to the firearms industry in the shooting sports, they get involved in the shooting sports and then they look at it from that analytical standpoint where maybe they're a computer programmer. Maybe they maybe they do, uh, you know, higher end video production. Maybe they do who knows what machine work, you know, anything that then could have fresh eyes or a fresh idea about some aspect that could grow. What the shooting sports are, how the shooting sports work, a new product, a new take on something. So um, the, the world we live in right now in terms of technology is evolving so quickly. And trying to keep up with it when it comes to cameras is, is something that I have really started paying attention to. Um, because the biggest problem that I'm faced with for my audience, whether they're an educated competitor in any of the practical sports, or they're just somebody who's watching for entertainment, the biggest challenge that I'm faced with is helping them understand the scoring in as close to real time as possible. And for me, that's done all in post-production. But there's always this question of how can you make it something that people can see? How can you make it something that people can understand in real time? And that was The driving force behind the original steel challenge and then later the pro am pistol format where steel falls down. Mm. If you see somebody shooting fast, like even somebody who's uneducated can understand the difference between fast shooting and measured shooting, if you will. Fast shooting with hits on steel have an immediate audio, you know, audible feedback. You know, when you hear five fast shots and five fast dings on steel, that was fast. And typically, there's a display that shows a clock and you can tell if a clock is showing a faster time than the other or whatever. That's very rudimentary when it comes to it. But that level of understanding for the observer, even the casual observer, is what I'm trying to take further steps forward with when it comes to USPSA and IPSC and how we present that product within the show, how that product is presented. And what I'm finding interesting is there are a number of good follows in social media and there's one in particular. And I, the the guy's the guy's last name is Rodriguez. I'm pretty sure. I'm gonna flip this through here. I'm not. I don't want to get distracted. But the reason I'm bringing this guy and his feed up is he films himself with a GoPro that's attached to his ear protection, and he then takes that video in post in post production in his own post production. Yeah. Okay. So his handle is Make Ready. His name's Anthony Villanueva. Um. He's off the West Coast guy. And he, in post-production, will take his video from his GoPro and he will then put his target scores as you see him shooting the targets through the GoPro after fact, right? Mm, okay, yep. And so I've reached out to him and I'm like, what's your setup? How are you doing that? And he's like, it's a GoPro session. I'm like, that's awesome, dude. It looks fantastic. It looks rock solid because it's attached to his earmuff, ear protection. And then I'm like, how do you go about doing that? you know, where, where your scores on targets. And he's like, it's just something I do in post-production. I just do it with the editing software. So for me, it's like, okay, how do I take that inspiration and give him full credit? You know, I mean, I've messaged with him. I'm talking about him right now. Um, But how do I, how do I refine that even further and polish it and then present it to the shooting USA audience? That's the next level. That's the next step for me because the alternative is something that I think people are trying to work on as well. And that is a target that immediately shows you from a distance, how it's been hit, what the scores are on the target. And the benefit for the observer at that point makes this just a little bit more of a spectator sport, if you will. Um, The other challenge is, is how do you put it in front of a crowd? How do you get crowds who can understand it in real time and see it because now when you have crowds, you have excitement, you have cheering, but you also have butts in seats and butts in seats bring dollars and Mm. dollars mean you have money to fund these things. So these are the, these are the elements that I'm excited to be exploring as technology continues to evolve, even in the last couple of years, the way the technology has changed. So um, yeah, it's fun. It's a good time.
0: Well, and, you know, I cuz uh, to your point, yeah, it's like it's very difficult to get someone excited about, sh- you know, going out to watch a USPSA event for for 3 days, especially when like, oh yeah, okay, so they hit that steel, but what about the paper? I don't know what they did, right? Like right. I, I always joke all my hits are alphas on video, even though they're mm-hmm. misses and, you know, stuff like that, but there was um, you know, when I when I looked into it, you know, remember that show Top Shot? That was super popular on History mm-hmm. Channel for uh, a couple years ago now, uh, Christ, it's been, it's been more than a couple. But you know, one of the things that I think was so um, captivating from an audience standpoint for that show was the fact that you know, yeah, the audience knew when they hit the target because the targets exploded, the sure. the glass broke. The, there sure. was there was sure. an instant. You know, it wasn't just like, oh yeah, shoot that paper target. And when the shoot and see crackles away, like you know, you hit it. It was it was something like, oh yes, that's that's definitely a hit. Now let's move on to the next you know thing. And yeah, it's it's uh it's interesting like I can understand steel challenge um from that perspective but like you know how many times can you watch someone shoot the same eight stages five times in a row and you know right. like it can just be so like blah. And and I almost feel like you know we were making so much headway in the shooting sports when 3 gun nation was a thing. Um yep.
1: They had a good model. They had a good model. They had the reactive targets, you know, the clay birds, the clay birds bust. They turned to dust the, the falling steel at distance, you know, distance rifle shots on a, on a plate rack, um, a very easy to understand, you know, only three scoring zones on a very large, very easy to understand target for pistol. Like they had a good thing going. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, well, I think the other element that they put in place that I that I admire very much is that they would do it in such a way that you could see it. I mean, you were involved in it behind the scenes. Like, you were one of the competitors. Um, I never set foot in one of their arenas at one of their events because, frankly, at that time, they're competition. Uh, they, there's a small amount of advertising dollars that we as a production company rely on to bring Shooting USA to the television or to the cable network, and they dipped into that pond, and they f- had their run, let's say, uh, but it was at, in in a couple of instances, it was at our expense. So, hmm. you know, be that as it may, no hard feelings. You know, I'm happy for everybody to have business. I'm also happy to see somebody else's take on a shooting sport, and I think they were successful to the point where they weren't. And there's... um there's something to be said for the fact that we have continued and we are entering our 30th year of broadcasting shooting sports on television, one form or another, under one name or another. Um, under the name Shooting USA, we are in our 19th season. So, Oof. you know, there's, there's not a lot of TV shows that make it that far, and unless you're talking like The Simpsons or Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> and um, when you throw in the whole polarizing element of firearms – it becomes even more narrow scope. So,
0: anyway, yeah. To the point. That's the, that's the difficult thing is the the big scary gun because that's the platform we use for the sport. Like you know, it's 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 always interesting to me that um, you know to to get outside sponsors would be like the sure the next step. But mm-hmm. you know, you look at at some of these companies that we've reached out to, and this is from you know. Way back in the past, like, again, Three Gun Nation kind of era when it was starting to become popular, it was on MSNBC and all that kind of stuff, or um, no, MS, uh, NBC Sports Network or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. They're on NBC Sports, yeah. And um, you know, you'd hit up a company like Red Bull, and they'd be like, "Oh, you guys are fired." No, thanks, We're not, we don't want to touch yep. that. And it's like, one hundred percent, you sponsor events where guys literally f- drive their bicycle off the side of a mountain doing flips and stuff, right. and that's right yeah you know, it's like but that that's that's not dangerous, you know like you're 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 encouraging these kids to try and well, you know
1: I mean, I can speak to that to a certain extent because I was involved you know i was a I was on brian 's behind the lens brian connolly's behind the lens uh podcast, and we we unpacked this question of how you get mainstream advertising dollars to come in so that you can do mainstream production type things where you would have a budget of you know, mid six figures for an event to bring a production truck and bring multiple cameras and really make it look like, you know, like take any college sport, you know, the, the March Madness, the SEC tournament's kicking off right now in Nashville at the Bridgestone Arena. And they've got four production trucks down there because so they've got 10 cameras on the floor and they've got remote and they've got guys and girls doing immediate interviews. How do you get a budget like that? For a practical shooting sport. Well, you have to have mainstream dollars. The problem is you have the companies, even companies that would be interested. Like I spoke about this on Brian's podcast. We had a gentleman who is a, I mean, he is the owner. He is the name of a particular pizza company that is nationwide, that is bigger than, I mean, they're as big as any of them. And he is into shotgun sports and he and Jim met met, and he had a friendly conversation and they talked about what does it look like to have this company involved with Shooting USA. And he came to the meeting to look at the proposal and his attorneys were with him and his attorney flat out sat there across the table and he said, you can't afford the negative press that will come from this. And, you know, our only retort to that is, well, the firearms industry and the shooters and everybody who is into 2A and all of that are fiercely loyal and will support. And he's like, the attorney's just like, it's, you know, 10,000 people love it and five vocal people from the other side hate it. The negative press will get so much traction. It's not worth it. And they had to pass, unfortunately. That's the problem. It's going to be polarizing and it always will be because it is a political divide. Like it's as big as any other political position you could take. And this one actually is even, it could be theoretically even bigger. So the question becomes how do you move away from the need for that level of funding and do it? as a good steward of the dollars that are available within the industry. And that has been how we've gotten to the point where we are now. And what I hope we will be able to explore with some new potential ideas that are very close to becoming real. Um, If you look at what um, BASS, so B-A-S-S, right, the pro-fishing Mm. They have now MLF or Major League Fishing, which is a big deal. And they draw big outside sponsors like boat companies and engine companies and trucks. But interestingly enough, one of the big firearms manufacturers goes and puts some money in Major League Fishing. And they do that because it rates. How do we get those dollars out of the fishing boat and back into the gun world? back into actual shooting sports because n- you're not going to see one of their products in an episode i'm not going to name the company but you're not going to see one of their products in an episode of of major league fishing you'll see their logo on the side of a guy's boat that's mm-hmm. it nobody's going to pull a big mouth bass <laughs> and then whip out there i'm not going to name the company and <laughs> right. blast that bass that's not how it's done dude or, or even so, just
0: pose with it like yeah that's a beautiful exactly fish, holding exactly exactly so yeah.
1: From a marketing standpoint, the only reason that that money is over there, and I know it's significant money. I know it is. Oh, um, yeah. and we're talking a lot of money to be over there. Uh, the only reason it's over there is because it rates. So how do we make something related to the practical pistol sports rate? We make it understandable immediately. We put a headline like Three Gun Nation did. Again, I admire a lot of things they did. And one of the big things that they were very successful with is they put headline money on the line. You know, if I tell you... 50 grand is on the line for the final. We're going to do multiple lead up events leading into this thing in a very simple format that's fast and flashy and easy to immediately understand. And we've got sponsored dollars that will get us headline money. Headline money makes people pay attention. And the final, if it's done the way it needs to be done, will look right and will have a big paycheck attached to it. And that will be the proof of concept that then gets that rating that then makes it marketable for a company that otherwise would spend their significant advertising dollars elsewhere. That's the point. That's the way it's done. Um, and that's what I'm very excited to be literally on the cusp of like in the next 45, 60 days, we'll know if this thing's going to happen. Oh,
0: nice. Okay. Exciting times. Keep keep our eyes open for that.
1: Exciting times.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think was, um, the biggest selling point for the popularity of Three Gun Nation Two was not. It wasn't just the simplicity of shooting their matches, but it was it was the shoot off. Everyone wanted to make it to the shoot off because it just looked fun as hell. And I can tell you from 100%. being from being one of the competitors that was in the shoot off, it is fun as hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I'm actually surprised that that's not something that has become a more regular thing to do just because i mean like i said it's just it's just really fun to go up head you know call call out a buddy be able like yo i'm calling you out let's go and Mm -hmm. boom okay let's let's run let's shoot and whoever whoever finishes first wins you know no from what i understand
1: from what i understand they have an they have an event that looks like that that's going to be a part of this world pistol championship that's going on on the infinity ranges in texas um In a couple of brief conversations, it's turned out that they're not in a position to have us come, which is fine, understandable. Um, However, I have done now two lead episodes from the Utah Airguns Rocky Mountain Airgun Challenge, which is a precision air rifle competition that has a number of different traditional air rifle events, but has incorporated their own version of a shoot-off that they call the speed event. And there's money available. And they get a crowd because everybody who's there has shot earlier to try to make it into the speed event. And it boils down to the top 16. I've presented it twice in Shooting USA. And I I cannot explain how electric that atmosphere is when you've got head-to-head racing on targets that you can immediately see the reaction from and granted, they're small because they're air rifle, but they're pretty close because again, they're air rifle. And you've got 200 or so people on bleachers sitting around watching it. It's it's literally edge of your seat action. And you can watch it, um, you know, on the coverage that we've done in the last two years that we've been to that event on shooting USA. And I'm constantly looking at how do we make something that looks like that and feels like that with a crowd but incorporates other disciplines? That's the question, and we're not far from it, man.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, and, and obviously there's some sort of magical you know, um, formula that's out there because you, you can't, like, don't get me wrong. I love swinging a golf club. How the crap is golf so popular to watch on TV? <laughs> you know what I wow. mean? Like every, every around this come. So that, as a golfer, I understand, but from someone mm. that doesn't appreciate it, they would probably just be like, there's a lot of guys just swinging clubs and hitting balls into holes. Like why is it why are they getting paid so much money? Like there's a lot of, wanna... <clears throat> there's a lot of crossover, I think when it comes
1: to the the recreational players um and there's a there's there are some similarities related to the fact that if you're going to have a gun range You're going to have to occupy some ground. You're going to have to have some dedicated construction in the form of your berms and your ground, and it takes money to build that. And just like a golf course has dedicated, you know, it takes money to have a golf course too. There's plenty of money in golf. There's tons of money in golf. And that's the thing. Anybody who knows, if if you buy a set of golf clubs or you go and buy a a three-wheel cart that carries your golf bag or you buy anything related to the sport, there's a premium markup to it just because... That's part of the sport.
0: Right on. Well, we're we're coming around to about an hour here. Um, now, I do want to bring up one thing, and that's this is something that I wanted to bring up because uh, obviously, with you and your expertise, you, you and your family, you've been doing uh, the network TV show. I mean, your mm-hmm. your dad, if I remember correctly, was like, did, was he on the news side initially? Yeah. He was a, he was actually well, he started
1: in radio in in uh, when we lived in Hawaii. My mother was a flight attendant, and her family is from Hawaii, and um, he got his news radio gig there that evolved into his on-camera news gig, which immediately took us to Phoenix, Arizona. And back in the day, the CBS affiliate Channel 3 was Eyewitness 3 then. They have since lost the CBS affiliation, that network. But he was the anchor, Um, you know, the... Monday through Friday, 5, 6, and 10 PM, CBS News anchor in Phoenix for all the years that I was in elementary school. And so I was exposed to that level of television production in the early 80s where there was no digital production at that time. So one of the big things that I would do, I'd get to go with him to the station on Fridays. Like I'd go after school And he'd do the five, and then he'd do the six, and then we'd go and have dinner. And then I'd hang around with the graphics arts guys in the graphic arts room where they would make these big boards. Like, they would make the graphic art that went up in in set. Because back then, you know, early 80s, there was no digital art that went on. Like, they were on the cutting edge at that time with a chroma key background for Jim Howell, who was the weather guy. And I was fascinated by that because Jim would show me, the other Jim would show me, you know, stand here, you see this, it looks green, but when the camera shine, you know, when the camera sees it, I look over here and I see the screen that shows the map and the things that I'm pointing to. And that's how I know what I'm pointing at. And I was, you know, I mean, I was a little kid. I was 10, 11 years old. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. Look at all this. And then... You know there were other shows within that network or within that particular station and network that Jim produced. He was very close with the uh, Humane Society just because we happened to have uh, a neighbor that lived on the same cul de sac as us in Phoenix uh, who was one of the directors of the of the Arizona Humane Association, part of mm-hmm. the Humane Society. So he had done some investigative work on the dog fighting back in the mid eighties there and. Um, we went on a couple of trips north of Flagstaff when there was hard freezes to help farmers that had like their ponds frozen over and cows weren't able to f- weren't able to drink and different things like that. Like as an extension of the Humane Society, they also did a program called Pets on Parade. And that's where I first turned up on television um, with <laughs> our dog um, that we I, we'd gotten a lab puppy. Uh this preceded the and this is one of those shows which they've been duplicated thousands of times since then where you know the local humane shelter brings through you know a dozen different dogs over the course of the half hour show that are up for adoption this weekend you know meet yep. meet ace and 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 meet meet fluffy and this and they really have success getting people to come get these these dogs and cats out of the shelters but that was where i first turned up on television because We worked with a guy who did simple obedience training and, you know, in a couple of obedience training sessions with this lab puppy, um, I was showing how you can do, you know, sit, stay, come, heal commands, things like that as a 10 and 11 year old on TV. And that then led into one of the things that Jim did as a docuseries and it's called Charlie the Dog Nobody Wanted. And it's an interesting thing because that dog came out of the humane association. You know, we adopted that dog from the humane society. She was a border collie. Charlie was a female. And um, through the through the five nights of this docu series, you see Charlie's life in in sort of I don't know. It was it was drama, but it was also fiction in that you mm-hmm. know she belonged to a family. She had to be she had to be abandoned. She got picked up. She follows a kid home that she sees at a school. Well, that kid happens to be me because I'm feeding her baloney out of my lunchbox. And then she ends up getting picked up by the Humane Association. She goes to a shelter. Nobody wants to adopt her. And then in the final episode, she gets the blue shot. And people were mortified that, you know, they'd killed this dog on news. And then, you know, it, it flashes forward. And there's Jim and Charlie. And he said, you know, the good news is this is just a story. This is the version that you know charlie lives with us now she's our dog but understand thousands of dogs around the world around the country have to go through this all and and he won all kinds of of awards related to that production back then um i actually have a copy that i took off of beta and digitized and i put it on my uh I put it on my YouTube channel, which is funny because it turns up people. People have found it not on the Shooting USA YouTube channel. So if you search, <laughs> if you search, if you search "Charlie the Dog Nobody Wanted" on YouTube, you'll get it, and uh, you'll see me at I don't know. I think I was ten. I might have been eleven. I might have been eleven when we did that production. I <laughs> mean, it. it's pretty hilarious. Um, but yeah, it was very much Jim coming out of television news working a number of different jobs across the country because news is one of those things you move you yeah. the idea is to move to a bigger market a bigger city a big and so on and he finally got to a point where he was like I'm done with this I'm done with I'm done with fighting over TV news I'm done with fighting for a bigger market I'm done with the politics involved I'm done with you know ownership changes and things that are just ridiculous that people who go that route have to deal with and he moved out into He, he located himself here in Nashville at that time, um, with a production company that was doing a video magazine related to country music. So this was on the cusp of VHS becoming DVD. There was no such thing as the internet. Um, this Mm -hmm. was like, this was like 88, 89. And there was a, uh. This this little startup company was going to deliver a monthly subscription where instead of getting a paper magazine out of your mailbox, you would get a VHS tape and you could watch, you know, news packages created about country stars and different things in country music. And it failed miserably (laughs) because it was uh, it was not at the right time. You know what I mean? If And I don't think it would have worked if it were on DVD, but it was one of those things. It was on VHS, and people were wanting DVD. And even if it was on DVD, I think it was too close to the beginning of what um, network programming was going to be providing on stations like CMT at the time and different things like that. Like It was built for that, but it would come in your mailbox. And people never really understood. But because of that, he was here and able to network with the production company that created American Shooter. They were originally doing the automotive programming, which that production company still exists and still does. And he was doing uh, freelance work for them, doing automotive reviews. And, you know, that was working well. Uh, I was still in high school. And they then developed the American Shooter concept. And had produced a couple of things for ESPN before it was bought by Disney, and they had secured Chuck Connors, the rifleman, to be the host. And unfortunately for Chuck, he passed away right before that production went underway. And at that point, they're like, well, who can we get to do it? And Jim was like, yo. And they they put Jim in place, and people liked him. People liked his delivery and, you know it went from there and we all were learning on the fly. And that's where I got my start. That's the first time I was around organized shooting competition. It was an IRC, uh, in California. And I was carrying one bag of tapes and the other bag on my other hip was full of batteries. And I had a tripod over my shoulder. And I thought I had a VHS sleeve from when we were distributing American shooter on VHS. I have one somewhere, but in the cover art, (laughs) There's a picture of me in black and white set into all these other photos, but there's a picture of me holding all that crap. And (laughs) it's funny because it's not firearms related, but I don't know why it ended up in the cover art. So anyway, I'll have to dig that up. I've talked about it many times, but that's where, that's where it started, man. And, uh, you know, we'd had exposure to fires when we lived in Phoenix. We would go out to the desert. Um, and we would, we would plink, we would ride three wheelers and, he had a Smith & Wesson kit gun, a little twenty-two revolver that we still have. It's here in the collection. Um, but that's the gun that I learned to shoot on. You know, I learned sight alignment. I learned muzzle discipline. I learned all of the four firearm safety rules. Um, my brother learned on that gun, and my stepbrother learned on that gun. So, you know, it's one of those things. It's That was where exposure to firearms started, but the exposure to competitive shooting sports didn't happen until – the early '90s, in the beginning of shoot or American Shooter, yeah. Well,
0: yeah, that's that's crazy, right? Like uh, it's, it's just funny how how one path can lead you to to something else, and then it just oh, I'm telling you, you know, it seems it's like, oh yeah, I'll take I'll take a chance, I'll take a shot, and the next thing you know, it's like, whoa, crap, okay, here we go, we've got something, and then next thing you know, you're like, ah, oh, there's so much to learn, and right. I only have the brain capacity for so much, so right. Right on right on all right well uh let's I've got a couple of uh, fast fire questions that we'll we'll end off with, and then no, uh 'rit we'll do our final sign off so uh with that being said, let's start off what is the worst present you have ever received
1: like the worst gift like a gift is what
0: you're talking about yeah. a present but, Okay, like, so yeah we a joke about gift this. or whatever yeah
1: no no, no, this was I think I think my wife meant well, but she got me a make beer at home kit like a beer making kit <laughs> and not. <laughs> not for me. <laughs> we laugh about that. We laugh about that one. Yeah. Okay. Home beer that, making right. kit. Like you make beer in your bathtub. No thanks.
0: Yeah. Uh is it wrong for vegetarians to eat animal crackers? No, I don't think so.
1: I mean, my wife's a vegetarian, <laughs> not by choice, but by kind of composition, and she if if she could, she would eat bacon all the time. So, yeah, I mean If you're a veg, I will say this. There's a caveat to that question. If you're a vegetarian because you are that way because you believe it's cruel to eat any kind of an animal or animals have feelings, animals are not food, then no, dude, you're not allowed to eat animal crackers. You have to stick to (laughs) Nilla wafers.
0: Sorry. Right. Yes. Exactly. All right. um, Neat or on the rocks? Oh, for whiskey, neat. For tequila,
1: uh, for tequila, pellet ice and two squeezes of limes.
0: Okay, Well, there you go. There's but a yeah, whiskey. Right nothing
1: else goes in the glass of whiskey, dude. My other glass uh, I, has has uh, ice water or has uh, club soda. You know, a nice club soda. That's in the other glass. The whiskey sits in there by itself, dude.
0: I fully agree. And for those of you that say, "Well, what if you just want to chill it?" Whiskey stones. They exist. Well,
1: I tried them. I don't care for them. Honestly, I really don't. And here's the thing. My buddy, who he's a buddy of yours now. You know, mm. you got a nice package from him. He insists, and he knows because he's exposed to the highest levels, um, including, including Jimmy Russell, that many distillers intend for you to put a little water on the whiskey to open it up. And I, mm. I get it, but they're like, but drink what you like, and that's right. what I like. Drink what you like, yep. and that's what I like. So you know, absolutely under no circumstances are you allowed to put any kind of Coke or any kind of cola or anything like that on a quality bourbon. If you do that, you know we don't play cards. We're anymore. not friends. There's a yeah, there's we're, a we're funny story. <laughs> years ago, um, you know, as a squire, when I was still drinking on the road, we would go and pick up a bottle of of gentleman Jack. And I had hired a guy at one time to, and this was before consumer like privately owned drones were a thing. I'd hired a guy to bring out his big commercial multi-prop drone to fly over an event in Florida. And I want to say it was U.S. Steel Nationals, I think is the one we, we, we had him out for. And he was like, oh, okay, well, what do, you know, it was after the shoot and it was in between days of the match. And it was like, well, we're going to slide by the liquor store. We're going to get a bottle of Gentleman Jack. And he's like, well, let me buy it. Let me buy it. And I'm like, all right, yeah, sure. You can buy it. And we sat down by the pool at the hotel and we we're having our little pregame. And, you know, Randall's there, he's a squire and we're enjoying that gentleman, Jack, and he's mixing it with Diet Coke. And I'm like, I looked at Randall at one point, and I was like, I'm not going to say anything because he bought the bottle, you know? But you don't do that, dude. You you just don't do that. Anyway, drink what you like. That's what I say. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, lately I've gotten into tequila just because it has kind of a different... um, a different effect after, if you will. There's a lot of sugar in bourbon that you don't necessarily realize. And Mm -hmm. that's, for me, what kind of causes what you would consider a hangover or a drag effect later. Um, It's not really present for me in tequila, which is interesting. Anyway, yeah, for sure, dude. Uh,
0: Perfect. All right. Would you rather have the the power to teleport exactly 10 feet in any direction Mm. or to be able to change your hair color to a primary color only? Yeah, teleport. What hair color? I don't ten. understand. How is that a superpower? <laughs> anyway, it's how's teleporting only ten feet a superpower? <laughs>
1: well, it could be. I mean, if you can get through. I mean, theoretically, you're saying you can teleport through a wall, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be clear line of sight teleporting. Or, I mean, am I asking right. too many? But exactly
0: questions? ten feet. Exactly yeah, ten fine. feet. Yeah, that's so. fine. No problem. Okay. Yeah. And then last one. Would you rather fly with a Thunderbirds or drive mm. an F one car? Uh. WOO yeah i know that's a good question because i don't know the answer like i was like well
1: i know this i mean have you everybody i'm sure has seen the episode of top gear where the i think it was hammond was trying to drive an f1 car and he couldn't get himself to get it going fast enough to get it to do its proper ground effect but i also know i think indy has a two-seater that you can take a ride with an actual driver in so i feel like that's safer um yeah I would have to definitely go that route. I know those. I know some of those dudes that fly either Thunderbirds or Blue Angels or whatever the exhibition jet pilot guys like to get people in the back seat and like to knock them out. And mm-hmm. that's not that's <laughs> not for me, dude. I'm gonna be 49 this year. That's not my game. <laughs> hey, you look you look
0: amazing for 49 there. Thank so you. So not 49 yet, but thank that. you. Thanks for the compliment. Uh, 48, 48 and a half then, but mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever. Yeah, so. Mm-hmm. Right on. Well, John, uh, we're going to wrap it up here, but is there anything else you'd like to add to the to the tail end of here? Anyone you want like to say thanks to or, or uh, well, think The I'm, floor is yours.
1: Well, I appreciate that. It sounds like the end of uh, Hot Ones, like this camera, this camera, this camera. Tell people what you got going <laughs> on in the world. Um, I, I'm especially grateful and thankful for everyone who takes the time to pay attention to our program, to what we do. And I am especially grateful to all of the people elite level competitors who give me access guys like you that i can consider friends but also guys that will tolerate our intrusion with cameras in the middle of you or them trying to focus as tightly as possible to potentially win or in some cases unfortunately lose a national championship that that is uh that's not something that i take lightly and i have worked very very hard over the years to make sure that i never embarrass anybody and i want to make sure that i maintain those relationships and the same goes for all of the disciplines that allow us to come and produce our television show within their events people that trust us to make a make everyone look good um yeah from there it's just one of those things stay tuned man because we are very close to launching something that i think is going to be very exciting and uh if you want to see more Shooting USA, we have a YouTube channel. If you don't have cable anymore, you can watch us on our Vimeo streaming. It's a very modest uh, modest monthly fee. I think it's like $2. If you want to support the show via the YouTube channel, there's a Patreon now where you can see full-length episodes and you can see watch-along episodes like I've done with Nils. I've got another one coming for the new show that launches next week um, with Austin Bushman, who wins the PRS finale and uh i'll be doing them as we continue to release new shows if you saw this week's release on youtube it was the 21 low cap nationals where our host the esteemed john mclean makes an appearance on the podium in the single stack division very fun very cool show uh that's out there
0: now so yeah look us up man awesome well there you go john scouton from shooting usa thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with me and uh Everyone else, man. Thanks, thanks for tuning in. Hope you appreciate and uh, enjoyed the um, enjoyed the podcast. I know I certainly did. It's it's uh, you know out on the range. It's there's so much going on. You're working. You're shooting. I'm shooting. It's dude, nice we to could, be able to just sit down and, and chat for yeah, chat for a bit.
1: Yeah, we could do this for hours. Um, this was an easy one. I enjoyed the I enjoyed the preloaded questions too. That was fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well,
1: thank you so much, and I'll, we'll catch you on the next episode. Right on, John. Thanks, dude.